Welcome to the Gospel Saves podcast, a program that discusses all matters related to the Christian faith. I'm Wade Stanley, an evangelist with the Church of Christ. Please visit thegospelsaves.me for blogs, videos, and Bible studies. You can also find The Gospel Saves on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Among the various acts of Christian worship is a meaningful ceremony celebrating the sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus instituted the memorial on the night before his crucifixion. After Jesus finished celebrating the Passover with his twelve disciples, he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 21. Although the details vary a little between the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul, the central message is intact. The bread represents the body Jesus sacrificed for us. The wine or the fruit of the vine represents the blood shed for our sins. When disciples eat the bread and drink the cup together, we remember what Jesus sacrificed at the cross to secure our justification and salvation. In a moment, I'll discuss why Jesus chose these two symbols and how first century Christians ate this meal together every first day of the week. The New Testament calls this ceremony various names. When urging the Corinthians to forsake the eating of foods offered to idols, Paul says, You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons, 1 Corinthians 10.21. Corinth was a Roman colony with many temples dedicated to the gods and goddesses of Rome and Greece. In these temples were what amounted to restaurants, and in the marketplace, folks could purchase food offered to the pagan gods. Paul pleads with the Corinthian Christians to distance themselves from idolatry. He asks them to consider how they could eat from the Lord's table, the bread and the fruit of the vine, and from the tables of these false gods and goddesses. So Paul referred to this ceremony as the Lord's table. A few verses earlier, he talks of the Lord's table in this way. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The word communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, a word translated in other passages as fellowship. Jesus instituted this memorial with his disciples, and they ate the meal together. They communed with one another as they ate. The Lord's table is a community meal shared by disciples, connecting us with our Lord. In the next chapter, he calls communion the Lord's Supper. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Corinth was a divided church, and those divisions affected how the church worshipped, including how the church observed this important meal. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk, 1 Corinthians 11.21. The church did not eat the Lord's Supper together. Some ate earlier and some ate later. The church treated this memorial as an everyday meal, so it was no longer the Lord's Supper. 
It was to be a communion, a meal shared by the community of believers in fellowship with one another and Christ. So the meal Jesus shared with his disciples the night before his crucifixion became known as the Lord's Table, Communion, and the Lord's Supper among first century disciples. But there is another way the New Testament describes communion. Scripture refers to it as the breaking of bread. Earlier I quoted from Luke chapter 22, verse 19, where Jesus blessed the bread and broke it. He divided the bread into smaller pieces and distributed them to the disciples. Paul talks of the broken bread in 1 Corinthians 10.16, the bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Believers in Jerusalem who were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Paul stopped in Troas on his way back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, verse 6. Luke tells us in verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. To break bread became synonymous with communion among the first century Christians. So what is communion? It's the meal of bread and wine Jesus shared with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. First century disciples also called communion the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, and the breaking of bread. It's a meal a community of believers eats together to remember the body Jesus sacrificed on our behalf and the blood he shed for our sins. But why did Jesus choose bread and wine, and how often should disciples celebrate the Lord's Supper? Ancient farmers in the Fertile Crescent domesticated wheat very early in their agricultural revolution, making bread a staple in this region for thousands of years. Melchizedek welcomed the victorious Abraham with a meal of bread and wine, Genesis chapter 14, verse 19. Both Abraham and Lot fed bread to their angelic visitors. Joseph stockpiled enough grain to sustain Egypt and her neighbors through a prolonged famine. Israel depended on a bread called manna to sustain them while wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. When Jesus modeled a prayer for his disciples, he asked, Give us this day our daily bread. So Israelites viewed bread as a type of food needed to ensure survival. By choosing bread to symbolize his body, Jesus teaches us we depend on him and his sacrifice completely. He foreshadows this in John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. As I said a moment ago, this part of the ancient world considered bread necessary for survival. One ate bread to sustain life. Jesus says, if we want to live forever, we must consume him. He is the nourishment we need to survive. And the sacrifice of his body sustains us for eternal life. God integrated bread into the tabernacle and temple rituals of the old law. Grain offerings, which sometimes consisted of bread, cakes, or wafers, accompanied the various sacrifices, except for the sin offering. As one entered the tabernacle, the Bread of the presence, or the showbread, sat on a table to the right, twelve loaves of bread that represented the twelve tribes of Israel. These offerings were food for the priests, 
and both of them foreshadow God's priest, the church, consuming the bread of life. Unlike the loaves of bread many of us are accustomed to, the loaves in these examples were unleavened. Leviticus chapter 2 verse 4 forbids using leaven or yeast in the loaves of bread or wafers of the grain offering. The Israelites removed yeast from their homes during the Passover feast. They also kept yeast from their homes for the seven-day feast of unleavened bread immediately following the Passover. So when Jesus first ate communion with his disciples, he did so in conjunction with the Passover meal. Thus, we can be confident the bread was unleavened. Leaven or yeast is commonly used as a symbol of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul urged the church to remove sin from their midst. He reasons in verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. The unleavened bread represents the untainted sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle John said, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. Unleavened bread commemorates the body of Jesus, who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So the view of bread as a necessary staple to sustain life, its use as a complementary offering in the various sacrifices under the old law, and the symbolic meaning of unleavened bread all point to Jesus deliberately choosing this food to represent his body. Jesus also chose wine or the fruit of the vine for a specific purpose. Scripture connects blood with the juice of grapes. When blessing his son Judah, Jacob foretells his son's abundance as his descendants would wash their garments in wine and their clothes in the blood of grapes. Genesis chapter 49 verse 11. Moses looked forward to the day when Israel, having conquered Canaan, would drink wine, the blood of grapes. Deuteronomy 32 14. God depicts the conquering of Israel's enemies as a treading of the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, God says in Isaiah 63, 3, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Revelation 14, 20 employs a similar image. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress. So scripture establishes a long-standing symbolic connection between grape juice and blood. Like the grain offering, priests under the old law would pour out a drink offering of wine. According to Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, drink offerings complemented burnt sacrifices, sacrifices that fulfilled a vow, or free will offerings. When Aaron consecrated the tabernacle and its contents, wine accompanied the offering of a lamb every morning and evening for seven days. Drink offerings accompanied the sacrifices during the three major feast days. With the exception of the sin offering, the old law prescribed 
grain, and wine offerings with all the sacrifices. As an aside, though I cannot be 100% certain, I suspect the wine Jesus used to institute the Lord's Supper was unfermented. Remember, Jesus used bread and wine from the Passover meal, a time in which no yeast was to be present in a Jewish household. Although the wine may have been naturally fermented, I suspect they drank wine with no added fermentation since yeast was prohibited. Therefore, I'm much more comfortable just using grape juice. It seems more consistent with the symbolism of the memorial. So when Jesus described the blood of the grape as the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, he drew upon a deep reservoir of biblical symbolism. From the metaphor of the blood of the grape to the winepress of God, grape juice or wine had long been associated with blood. The pairing of bread and wine as complementary offerings to the various sacrifices under the old law makes their use in the Lord's Supper significant. The bread and the fruit of the vine complement the sacrificial offering of Jesus. One difficult question remains. How often should disciples eat the Lord's Supper? Unfortunately, you will not find unanimity within Christendom on this or many other questions. The Catholic Church requires its members to receive the Eucharist once a year, but encourages them to partake it as often as they attend Mass. Other churches only celebrate it on special religious holidays like Christmas and Easter or at weddings or funerals. Different churches say once a quarter. The churches I attend eat the Lord's Supper every Sunday based on Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Earlier I mentioned how the breaking of bread became synonymous with the Lord's Supper, which certainly appears to be the case in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. The disciples in Troas gathered together to break bread, or to put it another way, they met for the express purpose of eating the Lord's Supper together. They did so on the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose from the dead, the day Peter first preached about Jesus rising from the dead, and the day the Apostle John calls the Lord's Day. From Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we also discern that the disciples did not associate eating the Lord's Supper with a religious holiday. Jesus instituted this memorial at the time of Passover. A few centuries later, folks would adapt the Jewish holiday of Passover to the Christian holiday Easter. But notice in Acts chapter 20, verse 6, that Paul was in Philippi during the Days of Unleavened Bread, the feast that immediately followed Passover. So Paul did not eat communion with the church in Troas in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on what would later become known as Easter. Instead, he ate it with the church on a Sunday after that holiday. So it appears to be a regular practice of the church. They gathered every first day of the week to remember the death of Jesus by eating bread and drinking the fruit of the vine. Thanks for listening to the Gospel Saves podcast. If you found this program useful, please visit thegospelsaves.me to find blogs, videos, and Bible studies. If you enjoyed the music on this podcast, please visit acapeldridge.com. You can also find Acapeldridge on Apple Music, Google Play, 
Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook. May God bless you as you seek to know His perfect will.